Kia ora and welcome to Inside Parliament, a weekly catch-up where we cover and discuss the political stories uh, that we've been covering here for One News this week. We're coming to you from the legendary Beehive Studio in Parliament. I'm Mikey Sherman. I'm Jessica Much Mackay. And I'm Benedict Collins. And obviously we're going to kick off the uh, podcast this week by talking about our peaks and our pits and I'm going to throw it to my right here to you, Benedict Collins. What is your peak? My peak, hey, um, clear winner for me this week. Um, I've uh, did a story this week um, looking at basically how, how to reduce um, um, harm from, from drug use. And as part of that, I got to um, go and interview... Uh, one of the, one of the heads of the Portugal Drug uh, Institute, Joel Galau, and uh, apologise to any Portuguese speakers if I butchered <laughs> that, which I'm sure I did. But anyway, <clears throat> he was instrumental in changing um, Portuguese drug laws. Um, in the interview, he was telling me how basically they had an explosion um, in in heroin users, and, and they had like a hundred thousand people in Portugal, um, you know, diabolical drug use, dying or dying everywhere and society basically said hey we've got to stop we've got to stop treating people like criminals we've got to help them um and so he yeah anyway so they changed the law there they decriminalized all drugs and they started you know um putting people towards uh rehabilitation and stuff like that rather than um you know pinging them and putting them in jail basically over time um the problematic drug use halved down to fifty thousand people that they now consider have have a drug problem and they're still continuing to help all of them so a real sort of radical shift in drug policy um and then also as part of that story i got to go along to the drug foundation and the otago uni's public um health symposium and hear about from the canadians who have just uh legalized cannabis over there and heard from Eric Costin there, who was uh, talking all about how it's worked out for them, um, and, and basically he was a um, an official with Health Canada, and he just sort of talked everyone through, um, you know, the, the sort of issues that they've been having to deal with um, from the government side of things, and he also made it pretty clear they haven't seen the big problems that a lot of people feared, like with drug driving and accidental sort of over-ingesting of cannabis and stuff like that, so really interesting kind of... Um, issue for me to dig into this week and you can check out that track on our website as well if you're interested oh just a wee little plug there that's mm. always nice yeah. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. feel like that's becoming your forte eh the sort of drug area and sort of yeah interested well, in, the, in the developments right and, and yeah. also this government is really uh, is, is trying to move away from that criminal uh, the punishment role for users as well. But towards, are they, uh, though? And we'll come to that Yeah, well, we're going to have a look at that later. With, with yeah. Benedict's track on yeah, synthetics. But it's a big issue for this government. Um, and Jess, what was your peak Mine this week? is going international with my um, peak for the week. I really enjoyed watching um, the leader of North Korea and the leader of the United States of America are meeting again in Hanoi this week. And I just find the whole thing absolutely fascinating. Um, I think just the pomp and ceremony and all the politics and the nuances of words and the, um, the the way they shake hands and the way they talk to each other, I just find it really interesting from a geeky political What sort of a handshake was it? Was it like a bro, where was it like on you know second base type stuff? or you know, Well actually um, President Trump has said before that they um, fell for each other, they fell in love in <laughs> Singapore um, he's used those words before so yeah, but I just think the whole thing is interesting and all the motorcades coming in and out and just and what it means and the BBC track that I've um, that I watched had a really nice line that you know all of um, Vietnam's attention is focused on this meeting but the president's attention is back in uh, Washington where the whole Cohen thing is going on so I just I, I liked watching all of that play out um, even from afar so that was that was my geeky high this week. And speaking of uh, you know international 
uh, politics. Uh, one of my peak, I guess, is that I was at a function on the weekend uh, and someone came up to me, uh, a lawyer, uh, a New Zealand lawyer who's based in Japan, and said that uh, he listens to our podcast all the way from Japan. International and audience. So that was really nice to hear that. Um, global but on, reach. Yeah, global <laughs> reach, you yeah. know. So we, we love hearing from our, our yeah. listeners and our, our viewers of the podcast, so get in touch. But um, <laughs> also, I uh, my peak this week was uh, Sir Michael. It was actually from last week because it was the interview that I did from last week, but we obviously paid it out this week and we'll have a little look shortly. But Sir Michael Cullen basically talking about um, where Māori uh, land and assets fit in um, the reshaping of our tax system. And this is obviously on the back of the capital uh, on the capital gains tax announcement, which was part of the uh, Tax Working Group report. Um, just really sort of heartening to see that there is that sort of due consideration, um, whether or not you agree or disagree with it. Uh, I think it's just heartening to see that, um, you know, you have uh, the likes of Sir Michael Cullen who understand the history um, and can sort of make suggestions based on a place of understanding and knowing um, the impacts and so on and so forth around sort of Māori assets and land when it comes to issues like tax and it's just good to see that there's a empathetic air I guess um, around those sorts of tables when it comes to decision making so that was my peak and we usually forget to do our pits but here we go with the pits Benedict back to you what was your pit this week? Hey <clears throat> I guess the pit for me this week is of, I've just been finding lots and lots of like bizarre delays that I'm getting from the government in terms of releasing pretty trivial information. Uh, I don't know if I'd go quite so far to say that the you know, things are getting worse than they were under the last government yet, but stuff that was pretty quickly released in the past is now being uh, delayed for lengthy, lengthy periods for consul- consultation. I'm doing a little inverted inverted commas with my fingers here if you're listening um, you know for, for stuff that was released really promptly under the last government uh, it's a little bit frustrating when you have to wait months upon months for you know a, a data or, or you know a single piece of information that I think should be you know is in the public interest to release straight away so that's kind of yeah doing my head in a little bit lately you're going to keep a tally on that are you going to keep a tally on that sort of thing that's going to be a lot of work that's going to be a lot of work it's that bad guys Um, what about you Jess what was your Um, pit my pit this week was um, quite in house Um, there's a very senior um, reporter at Radio New Zealand um, the deputy political editor there Chris Bramwell she's heading across to um, be a press secretary for Grant Robertson so Great, exciting opportunity for her, but I guess tinged with a little bit of sadness that a senior journo is going off to be a press secretary. So even though, you know, it would be great for us having her um, on the dark side, um, I just think it is always a little bit sad in those situations, um, especially with someone who's been around for so long. So that's my little pit for... And I'm sure lots of people But go well, Chris. This. We love you, Chris. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. love you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and my pit, I don't really have a pit this week, guys. I mean, you know, uh, it's been a busy recess, what can I say? Um, so is that a pit? I don't know. It's kind of a good thing as well, eh? So yeah. I think let's jump, just jump straight into our tracks. And first up is your track, Jess. Yeah, and it was all about um, gender and transgender rights. So let's take a look at that. <laughs> Changing the gender on his birth certificate was a long, drawn-out process for Jack Byrne. The government was looking to make it easier, but has now put the brakes on this highly charged issue. One young person who rang me, who just said that she felt hopeless, she'd just given up hope, 
At the moment, people can amend their gender on their birth certificate through the family court. They need to provide evidence of medical treatment. It costs $258 in fees and can take more than a year. About 25 people go through the process each year. A clause inserted into the bill during the select committee process would have removed the need for medical evidence and allowed people to choose their gender. It's a small change that makes a big difference for us, doesn't hurt other people. But the minister says there are too many legal fishhooks for the likes of prisons and schools. For example, if, um, if a young person who had changed their gender through the statutory declaration uh, from, let's just say, from male to female, went to um, a girls' school and wanted to enrol. So work does, I believe, needs to be done here. Uh, but we need to make it stick. And unfortunately, what we were being told by Crown Law is you could make this change and it could be open to challenge. Mm. The government admits this is a big call to make. As a compromise, it's promising to make the family court process less invasive and expensive. But some people have been waiting more than a decade for change. Trans people are absolutely devastated about it. I think after such a long wait, um, you know, waiting for basic human rights. Sometimes we're really vulnerable when other people... Um, if we don't have other people standing beside us and supporting us. Government support, however, has been delayed for now. So I think the reason this is such an interesting story is because you've got something that affects a relatively small group of people, right? But means, as you saw in that story with how emotional um, the person we spoke to got, it means a great deal to people. It's symbolic. It's their birth certificates. It's their cause for identification. But that small change has very wide-reaching ramifications just for things like our prison systems, for our school systems, and they're not insolvable problems, but they need to be worked out and gone through and have, and, and like the Minister said, we don't know the answers to those questions. So the process didn't go through properly, they didn't have the public consultation like they should have, and now they've had to come out and disappoint um, the transgender community. Yeah, and, oh, no, you, you go. go. Okay, I, I thought as as well like this the sort of surprise element. Um, Jack Byrne in, in your story and you know, it's really upset about what had gone on here. I think it really caught them sort of uh, off guard that the government's sort of pulled pulled the rug out from the plan. Um, so you know, quite a surprise there. Um, very upsetting for them. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, it was really interesting to watch um, Tracy Martin sort of explain why she, she felt that she had to do this, that it was going to create, the, I think she called them fish hooks, you know, further further downstream with lots of other things that they had to, you know, sort this out before they went there. But the question to me is, and I'm not sure if you know the answer, is how long is the government going to take to, to look through this and try and figure it out? Well, they, have, they have to have... decide, I, I think, they have to decide what they're going to do with it now because it's effectively yeah. been through the select committee process. Mm. My understanding is that the minister can they can reopen it but it would have to start the process again but I'm not 100% sure where they are on that so they should have because it just for people who are um, understanding it it the this part was inserted after they'd opened it up for public consultation which meant that this part was debated by the committee um, and they'd got some advice on it but not they didn't ask for public submissions and they didn't have a chance to hear 
about it properly. It wasn't done in the right way. And I feel like there needs to be some extra accountability. I don't know that it, that we've sort of seen that part of it in, in this story is uh, whose decision was it to include this um, amendment at the last hour, it seems, after public consultation had closed. That's a bad call. You know that something like this is going to need that sort of public scrutiny and debate. Uh, and the fact that they brought it in at the last minute after that had finished is astounding. Uh, and it's obviously disappointing uh, for the community, the transgender community, uh, who you know were surprised by it being pulled. But it has to be pulled because it obviously does need to have that sort of public input uh, into something that, as you say, affects a whole lot of people. Uh, I was surprised um, seeing the number in your story that there were only about 25 people mm. each year that sort of went through the family court system um, to have their uh, gender self-identification changed. Um, surely there are loads more people who would want to do that and I guess that small number just indicates to us how difficult it is and how many people aren't able um, to make that change for themselves. So there obviously needs to have, you know, there needs to be work done here um, and the sooner the better because like they said they've been waiting for so long. Yeah, and, and when you talk about that 25, they have to prove medical treatment. And that's, right. that's and sounds pretty invasive, right? Yeah, mm. and, and an issue, I guess, with having to share that level of um, personal information in a court situation. I did think it was quite interesting because um, Tracy Martin went and did the interview on Q&A um, on, on the Monday night. And um, I did think it was interesting because we don't hear from her a whole lot. And I think she made, my judgment for the interview was she did make an effort to answer all the questions in quite a measured way. So I did think that we haven't seen her a lot. And, you know, she's done Q&A the odd time and, and things like that, but we haven't had a chance to get to know her style that yeah. much. <coughs> and, and acknowledging that it was a big call yeah. for them to make, yeah. to, to sort of pull the rug out from yeah. under this. Yeah, yeah know, so regardless this, of the decision, of the political process. Yeah, I think yeah. it was interesting to see her... her um, as a minister and get to know her style and things like that and she seemed um, across the detail and, and thorough and all of that so I just <coughs> from a pure politics mm. observing mm. Kind of point be of view I thought it was really to interesting to watch how she goes this will probably yeah. be her biggest test her first sort of big test um, as a minister and it's a highly charged issue so she'll mm. need to sort of tread delicately I guess <coughs> yeah and we've had some other big stories this week as well you had your poll Yes, Sorry. whole treaty. Let's take a look at that. It's New Zealand's founding document, but do we know enough about it? To be honest, we probably learned about like civil rights in the US over um, actual New Zealand history. We didn't know kind of even the fight that went into getting it signed. The Prime Minister celebrating our national day, but missing the details. The Article 1 of the treaty, what does it say? Oh, Article 1, on the spot. Kawangatanga, sorry, excuse me. Teacher unions, the PPTA and NZDI say the treaty should be compulsory in schools and the public largely agree. A One News Colmar Brunton poll asked, do you think it should become compulsory for New Zealand school children to learn about the Treaty of Waitangi at school? 71% said yes, 26% said no, the rest didn't know. And if we have not educated in our, in our schooling system about about our own history, where on earth are we going to learn it? Currently, the principles of the treaty underpin New Zealand's school curriculum, but how the story of the treaty and its details make it into the classroom is up to the individual schools. 
Our system works on the basis that the principals are given as a given and then parents and their schools determine how to give best effect to that and other aspects of the curriculum. That's an abdication of responsibility by the Ministry to say that it's up to schools to decide whether they should learn their own history or not. In a statement, the Prime Minister says it's her expectation that New Zealand history is already taught in most schools, but says it's something she's now looking into. Yeah, everyone should know about it, to at least some degree. Um, yeah, it's just I don't believe in anything in my school. Knowledge the majority of New Zealanders think should definitely be built on. So this was obviously a poll question uh, that we came up with after our coverage up at Waitangi where we sort of explored the issue around the treaty and its place within our schools, in particular within the school curriculum. A really interesting number there that that sort of three quarters uh, uh, supported uh, teaching the treaty as a compulsory part uh, within the classroom, within our schools. Uh, Were you guys surprised that there would be that sort of level of support or were you sort of not not that surprised. I wasn't that surprised speaking for myself I think that most people feel like it's an important thing to learn and I, I think that um, for <coughs> for some parents um, it's not always something that they learnt in school mm. so for parents to have that responsibility to teach their children yep they could go out and research and, and do that but I feel like if parents weren't taught about it in schools it's harder for them to educate their children so yeah I, I didn't find it that surprising. Did I was you? A, I, I was a little bit I, th- I was surprised at how how strongly um, Kiwis were in favour. I think, and for me, it was because it was around the you know compulsory. Yeah, that's aspect. the scary c but, word yeah, for many yeah, people. Isn't yeah, it? yeah. That compulsory. Which, and, and I just wonder whether people say, "Oh no, well, you know, maybe it shouldn't have to be compulsory." You know, and yeah, I support the teaching of it, but maybe not compulsory. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So. It, yeah, so I was a little bit surprised at how heavily in favour you know the public is. Yeah, and really interesting also to see um, the comments there from the Nainai College principal, particularly around his comment that um, you know the ministry's position that it's for parents and schools um, individually to decide whether or not um, the treaty is taught within the classroom, uh, and him saying that that's basically basically an abdication of responsibility by mm. the Ministry of Education. And I sort of put that to the to the uh, general secretary. Um, that I interviewed in that story and I sort of said, you know, when it comes to something so important, something that can shape um, us as a society going forward into the future, is it not, uh, should we not take more of a responsible approach to ensuring that that piece of, uh, that that document and that that piece of our history is taught within the schools? Are we we willing to leave something so important um, up to the whim of uh, a school and and parents um, who may not even have a great understanding of uh, that story themselves. So, you know, all of that to think about. Because I guess the other side of that is that most kids do learn about it because it's part of New Zealand Do they though? Because we don't actually know because Mm. that's what the Ministry says. It doesn't monitor. So how would we even know? And we saw there in the Vox Pops when we sort of went out and asked people that they said, oh yeah, we sort of had a brief history, maybe in primary or yeah, "Yeah, we learnt that it was signed but not really the story behind it. And So I guess it's that inconsistency, number one, but also whether we're covering it in the breadth and depth that you know we should be, uh, and we just don't know that. And, and I guess whether even in a in a symbolic sense, whether saying making it compulsory makes it important to yeah. us and that's what we want to do and that's what we want to present. The good thing is that um, you know, sort of following the public uh, d- 
discourse that's sort of happened around this issue. Uh, what we do know is that the Prime Minister's asked um, you know, uh, her minister to look into it, who's asked the ministry to look into it, and the ministry is now talking with the Education Review Office um, to see whether or not there's anything that they can do to strengthen. Um, even that monitoring um, around you know, whether it's being taught enough, whether there's enough support, those discussions are Enough ongoing. support for teachers and stuff yeah. so that they know, mm. you know So that they're confident, because yeah. obviously it's a complex issue, you know, there's two versions, you know, people on social media sort of asking, so whose version do you teach? And it's sort of working your way through all of that. I mean, you'd think mm. that we had already done that legwork, leg surely, yeah. um, but if, you know, if there is a call from teachers to have more support, then that's what we need to give them. Yeah. Also, I think, you know, with um, the last few decades, lots and lots of immigration, you know, people from other parts of the world coming to yeah. New Zealand, really important for them to sort of learn about the background and the history of, you know, how, how we got to where we are. And their parent, the parents coming here obviously wouldn't have the knowledge or capability to be able to do that with their kids. I think that's a really interesting point. Mm. Yeah, I think it was a good it was a good little one to round off because it was a big issue up in Waitangi, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. Now, next uh, story from me is the Capital Gains Trap. Auckland iwi Ngāti Whātu is close to a treaty settlement but has concerns about a possible capital gains tax on any future asset sales. It would be detrimental, primarily because we'd be spending more money on tax and we'd be spending less on our people. Submissions to the tax working group called for iwi to be exempt from the proposed tax. Sir Michael Cullen largely agrees. I think the general non-Maori public needs to understand there are some special cases here. It's not some kind of special particular deal. It arises out of our history. It's not just land. Iwi also receive commercial property, forestry and other assets potentially hit by such a tax. Assets aimed at lifting iwi out of economic deprivation. What we really want is equity at the end of the day. Um, the ability for people to determine their own futures. There may be a need to look at some special provisions to make sure that we're not preventing precisely what you talk about. The Prime Minister isn't ruling it out. The tax working group themselves have said it is a complex area where they have suggested to us we give further consideration if we go down that track. Structuring the rules to cater for Māori could be a hard sale politically, but the tax working group warns failure to do so could see legal action. I think you would see uh, cases taken immediately through to the tribunal to say this was a breach of the treaty. Being taxed simply because they represent a number in a bank account. That really is a, another form of a treaty breach. The working group is now urging the government to explore the issue further through consultation. So obviously, as I mentioned in my peaks, uh, this was uh, coming off the back of the Tax Working Group report um, and some comments there from Sir Michael Cullen, which are actually quite strong. I feel like these comments are quite strong when we're talking about sort of carving out um, some sort of niche uh, uh, exemptions or rules or sort of tools uh, when dealing with Māori. That's always, you know, really tricky politically. Mm. I mean, you get people saying, you know, special treatment, separatism, all of that. 
so um, for the for Sir Michael Cullen to basically come out and say, actually, I think that there are s- unique cases, and, and even in that story when he was like, you know, non Maori need to understand that there are special circumstances here. Those are those are um, difficult conversations to have, but important and uh, uh, really important for people in those positions to lead those conversations. So, what did you guys think? Do you think it's easier for him when he's not having to deal with the politics of it to be able to make those kinds of statements? Of course because it is, saying, because he didn't even want to touch the capital yeah, gains right. yeah, 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 when he was in government. Now he's like, hey, it's a great yeah. idea, guys. And let's do this and this. Mm. And so I do think it's really interesting um, interviewing ex-politicians um, because they suddenly have these views that they can share without fear of having to deliver them Politically, so I think I just think on that side of things, and it's and it's a complex politically fraught issue, um, and I just think that he he doesn't now have to, all he has to think about now is the is the principle and what he thinks is right. So I just think it was interesting to see that coming across in that interview. Just a funny note on while we're just on that point of Sir Michael Cullen, one of my friends sort of said to me, "Oh, geez, it's really good to sort of hear how empathetic he is towards Maori. Did he sort of miss that uh, over the foreshore and seabed when he was?" In government. <laughs> we had to have a little chuckle about that. Long One thing memory. I was wondering, Michael, when I was mm. watching that track, was, and you were saying part of the idea of, uh, you know, um, not applying the capital gains tax would be to help lift Māori out of deprivation or lift different iwi out of deprivation. But then, on the other hand, you've also got some iwi that are incredibly commercially successful as well, you know, who are doing very well financially for, for their iwi. Do you think, you know... Would it would it apply to all of them, or do you think maybe there's a point where he would become that successful financially and, and have so many good successful enterprises that when they did sell businesses or land that they would then come into a CGD? I don't know. And that they are there for self-reliant like uh, what Sir Michael Cullen was saying in that track. It's about wanting to get iwi to a point of self-reliance um, and mm. that is all and, and, to do with tinoranga, tinoranga. And there are different stages, And right? so there are different stages. Yeah. So that, that could be um, I agree, something that you know the government will need to look at um, when it's sort of forming uh, whether or not it carves out these special sort of exemptions, maybe there needs to be a tier system because, you know, for some iwi who are yet to settle, they're starting at the bottom, their economic wealth and and base is like zero uh, and then you compare that to the likes of another larger iwi who you know those ones who have already settled a long time ago Tainui and Ngaita who are yeah. doing extremely well are they treated on the same uh, playing field or is there going to be a scaling system and so on and so and forth and then you've got to look at the complexities of all of that and how you do it and how you agree to it so. yeah so it's going to be it's going to be tricky and one of the just in terms of trying to figure out all of the tricky bits um, because there are interesting to note that earlier in the week the Prime Minister was asked and this was a suggestion that Sir Michael Cullen in his stand-up when we were sort of interviewing last week uh, that he made quite strongly was that the government needs to get some international expert and advice in um, so that it can you know, formulate um, how it would even deliver um, things like a capital gains tax before the next election, which is actually not that far away. It's a huge body of work and that's what he said, that IRD has basically lost lots of its um, senior experts, so she needs to get some international help in. And when she was asked about it at post earlier this week, really interesting to note, she didn't seem to even uh, it wasn't really on her radar uh, and she, she sort of seemed to sort of shuffle towards, mm, I don't think so. so and I think, he really stressed and that and he stressed that conference. point, so I don't know yeah. if that was sort of like missed in communication got lost in translation or, or missed in communication, but I think that we probably need to sort of check 
back on that because that could be the difference between a successful transition and and a failure mm. uh, if we don't get the right advice, if we don't get in the right time. All of that is, is hugely important. Um, and anyway, so just quickly on this capital gains tax, I think the thing to remember is that this, uh, if there were any exemptions, Sir Michael Cullum was basically wanting to stress that you know it wouldn't apply to mere as an individual Māori. It would apply to collectively owned assets, so mm. the likes of, as we said, gave as an example, iwi uh, and treaty settlements. The other thing to remember when it comes to treaty settlement assets is that treaty settlements basically make up about 1% to 2% of the total value of assets that were stolen and lost uh, by Māori so you get bugger all back and then what iwi are saying is that now you're wanting to tax us on something um, that is actually we're supposed to use that to pull our people out of economic deprivation, poverty all of the bad statistics, you name it I mean so you can kind of, if you can understand that. It's like a double tax Then maybe you can understand that it's a little bit different from mum and dad investors or corporates wanting to make a profit on their business where actually in fact this is Mm. about lifting up a whole people who have spent decades you know, scraping on the bottom of the barrel. Um, so just have a little think about that, all you uh, trolls hitting me up on Twitter before you uh, send me some messages. We've had, to, we've had to um, hold Mikey <laughs> back right. from <laughs> the ledge of Twitter rage. <laughs> um, but how, how do we segue from that into synthetics? Talking yeah. about rage. Yeah, <laughs> let's have a look at rage and zombies. Let's have a look at, at this uh, synthetics track that we ran this week. A multi-million dollar plan to combat the synthetic cannabis crisis after dozens of deaths. The police minister with this message for suppliers in December. We will come after you and we will find you. But One News has obtained documents revealing Treasury told Cabinet the regulatory proposals are unlikely to achieve the government's aim. In fact, the plan was likely to criminalise some synthetic drug users. A key part of the plan... The government wanted police to go easy on users and hard on suppliers. The suppliers, we're going to go after. We're unapologetic about that. But Treasury was particularly concerned that the bar was set too low for those deemed suppliers. It argued the 56 grams threshold could be just a couple of days' supply for a heavy synthetics user. Officials also raised concerns about a lack of consultation by the government and a lack of evidence that increasing penalties reduces harm. The Health Minister, David Clark, issued a statement to One News saying he disagrees with this advice. But Treasury's concerns are shared. Trying to both have a tough-on-crime um, approach simultaneously to one that treats users um, with health services is contradictory. And National's not impressed. And if they can't get these changes right... How can we trust the government with other drug reforms which they're proposing to do throughout the year, such as marijuana, with a referendum next year? Officials did, however, back the extra funding for health and education initiatives. The government's still insisting its plan will help, rather than harm synthetics users. Yeah, look, so Treasury had serious concerns here about where the government had set that threshold um, for synthetic cannabis at that 56 grams uh, level. Because those who don't know, that's not that's not a lot, is it? No. Oh, see, I don't know, because with cannabis, it's not a lot. That's two ounces. I mean, you and your homeboys could get through that <laughs> over a couple of, you know, over, over a little break, uh, you know, over, over Christmas or whatever. But with synthetics, I think it can be, it depends what you're smoking, right? <clears throat> um it depends which substance it's been sprayed with. Um, we already know that you know one 
you know, joint can be fine, the next one can kill you, right, with synthetic cannabis because it's of the way they're spraying the chemicals. And I don't want to sound as, uh, I was an expert on it when I said that then, but just with the people were saying, you know, that it's just not, it doesn't last for a long time, does it? You know what I mean? Like that's a couple of days worth. And so who are you targeting really? Are you targeting yeah. those, you know, serious drug dealers that they wanted to target or are you targeting those who they actually wanted to help? And I just, I find it really astonishing that they would go against such... Um, strong advice from Treasury that basically says, yeah, this is not a good plan, guys. It's actually going to do the opposite of what you want it to do. And they still ran with it and they still came out so hard on it. Yeah, I think also Treasury sort of raised concerns about the lack of consultation. Um, The police here got much greater um, search and surveillance powers. Uh, They they raised concerns about the lack of consultation around there. Now, it was quite interesting going to the Minister. He just came back with a statement saying, oh, look, I, I disagree with this advice and I, I consider other advice too. It's not clear what that advice and, was. And that is his prerogative. That's you right. Know, and, like, people, and, yeah. and, and Ministers have to ignore advice or, or, or you know, weigh consider, out different yeah. advice all the time. It's not quite clear what and advice tricky, he was referring to there. Yeah, and the tricky thing for the government is, you know, this issue was building a lot of pressure. There yeah. were people dying week after week at that point and they had to, you know, look as though that they were doing something. And actually I think that they've sort of said um, before that going down um, the other route will take a little bit longer, a little bit more research needs to be put into um, a sort of more care-based approach. Um, <coughs> but they were still stuck with having to do something. And so, you know, obviously they came out hard. Yeah, hey, and let's be let's be fair here as well. You know, Treasury did say, hey, there were, there were good aspects of what the government's trying to do here, pumping more money into health and into education as well. Um, but you know, they, they did have some concerns, especially around where those uh, you know parameters were being set around this uh, around the amount where you um, become considered. Uh, where you're considered to be supplying rather than just using, <clears throat> and of course another, another, uh, I think another flaw with this approach here is that lots of people on the street, when you've got you know huge numbers of different synthetic cannabinoids, and two of them, two of which are A class and can send you to prison for a long time, and, and the rest aren't. <clears throat> Most people using this aren't going to know what you know chemical the chemical nature <coughs> of the. Um, synthetic cannabises that they're smoking, right? It's, it's hit and miss. But very few people will actually know whether they're committing an A-class crime with huge sentences or not. Mm. And Mikey, I think um, you you looked at that track and you you just wanted to... I looked to at that track and honestly I just had, I have to bring it up because all seriousness aside, alright, we've done the serious side, guys. I just want to know if anyone else kind of got the feeling you know, when we sort of see Stuart Nash up there and he's like, I will find you I will hunt you down. Does that kind of ring any bells for anyone? Because it kind of did here for us. A little bit of Liam Neeson perhaps on Taken. Do you think that was kind of like his spirit animal that he was trying to channel in there? I feel like Stuart now, Nash what, will love he, that comparison. He will, he will, right? Because, you know, what were the words of Liam Neeson when he was on the phone with the guy that had, you know, sort of uh, taken his daughter? He was basically saying the same thing as Stuart Nash. He was like, I will look for you, I will find you, and I will kill you. Probably not that last bit, not that last bit, but the bits before that was totally... Totally I wonder if that's the line he pulled out when he got into the argument in the gym a little while ago when he was looking weights. <laughs> could, could, could I feel like that's that's probably a, an aspiration of his, you know, I want to be police minister and I want to say the line, I will hunt you down and find you. And, you know, he delivered it well. I felt like I got that, you know, that was a good sort of deliverance in that track. So get it to the minister. <clears throat> 
Cool. Yeah. Hey, I think we've we're done and dusted, I think guys. We've exhausted ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> you guys should have seen the amount of laughing that we did. Well, we had to play that clip in the break. On oh my god, I don't we think could we could not can get it together, the guys. Just so crying. Funny. Everyone, just YouTube Liam Neeson taken, and then go watch Stuart Nash back on that, and you might have a good little <laughs> chuckle. <laughs> and I think on that note, we have to go on the outro. Yes, is it me? Yeah, yep. it's you. All right, okay, guys. Well, it was great to have you with us. Uh, this was Inside Parliament, our weekly catch-up about the political stories we've been covering on One News, including some YouTube inserts as well. Thank you, Liam Neeson. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. It's available every Thursday evening on the One News Facebook page and check us out on your favourite podcasting app, including now Spotify. Kaki See you next week. Yeah.